Welcome to the Fast Lane. Nick Miles is our auto expert. So drop it into gear. You've got a green flag. Here's Nick. You know, I uh, I have been around the world in 80 days. Me too. Yeah, you've been in Mexico, Megan, haven't you? Yeah, I guess that's not around the world, but yeah, uh, Mexico. But Mexico's always fun. Um, I petrified driving in Mexico. Uh, I was standing on a street corner in Tijuana, and I had a car horn like me, 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 you know, a little truck. Is this somebody you and know? no, it like and it went on and on. It got louder and louder and louder. And this little truck and this guy was leaning on the horn, and he came around the traffic circle, which in England we call a roundabout. Came around the traffic circle where we were standing, and he was holding his hand out of the window with his police badge, <laughs> just hitting his horn. In oh boy, a little like twenty-five-year-old Datsun truck. I will tell you, I've not laughed so hard. <laughs> this was his police car. I mean, well. just holding his badge out the window and and leaning on the horn. Um, and this is how, you know, emergency vehicles, I guess, did the deal. Um, so Yeah, over in Cancun, I didn't experience that. So. No? No. Um, I noticed in Cancun, they have the little, the small motorcycles. Uh, they're very, like, 650cc motorcycles. Mm-hmm. And they do, they drive around with those. And they do... Um, yeah, they, they sort of traffic control where they don't need to. Did you notice that? Like they'll stand in the middle of the street directing traffic, and there's no traffic. No, I didn't really notice that. There's no problems. There's just no traffic. I mean, the area I was in, I mean, they've got a highway, so it's very easy to get around. Um, it scares me a little bit sometimes, too. I was in Greece, um, driving in Greece. You've done the same thing. I've driven across Greece, yeah. Right, so in, Slippery. The, in the, uh, yeah, the upper part of Greece, which is not very nice, I totally to disagree. Say. I really? love Greece. Athens was beautiful. But we went some places where, yeah, all right. And uh, the, the, so the upper part of Greece and in the northern part of Greece, um, we were driving in this Land Rover Range Rover Evoque down a sort of two-lane highway, one, one, one side and one the other. And this little black Fiat was on the wrong side of the road coming towards us. You know, quite often you're like, okay, well, they're just overtaking someone. They'll get in the lane. We're getting closer and closer, and she's still, and it's just she, because I noticed that when I got up to her, she's still, she's she's oncoming, and she's not getting over. So she's from somewhere where she's driving on the right side. Well, no, no, <laughs> she was she was a local lady had a Greek Greek license plate, hmm. and she's getting closer and closer, and I could see they wouldn't let her back in, like the guys had closed the gap and wouldn't let this this person back in. And I got up to, and I'm, and at this point, my drive partner was Roman Micah from the Fast Lane Car, and he's like, he's like, oh, dude, 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 and I'm like, um, what I, you know, I'm slowing down, I'm, I'm going, you know, get down from about 80, 90 kilometers an hour down to 50, down to 35, and she's still now she's in like 150. It's a nun, it's a nun. <laughs> it's this little old nun coming towards me in the little black fit, like. I'll get over sometime. That's funny. Uh, that was my come to Jesus moment. It scared me. <laughs> our, our toughest part about driving around Greece, we drove around Halkidiki and then up to Thessaloniki. So we uh, had this like two cylinder car. So if I had to get up a hill, <laughs> forget it. I had to just figure out a different way. It's a good thing your kids are little. Like they're not, you know, big, beefy, like six foot tall, 300 pound kids. Well I, went, well, I went back and I complained. I'm like, look, there's something wrong with this car. <laughs> yeah, they said we can't get Welcome up a hill. To Greece. And they were like, this is in America. You know, get real, lady. I was like, okay. And uh, and it was 
it was just the way the cars were, these little two-cylinder cars. Yeah, they're just tiny. I don't think we've ever had a two-cylinder car in America. Well, <laughs> we may have done, but not in the last, like, 30 years. Uh, three-cylinder cars were kind of the, the, the Ford Focus, the little three-cylinder one. What was the G4? G4 wasn't a two-cylinder? Pretty sure the G4 is two-cylinder. I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm never, I've never driven a two-cylinder car. <laughs> Isn't that a lawnmower? Two, oh, that's two-stroke. Two-stroke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought maybe they were making it up. I'm like, what? A two-cylinder car? No, three-cylinders <laughs> was a bit dodgy because, they're, you know, three-cylinders are uneven. They're unbalanced. Isn't and that the I-8? Put, BMW I-8 has a three-cylinder everything? Yeah, but they have, you know, it's weighted off and it, yeah. plus it has the hybrid. So it doesn't, It you sounds know. real nice. Well, three-cylinders sound real nice. Though. I have to tell you. That's not the real sound of the car, that, th- that I-8. It's fake. My windows are down. <laughs> <laughs> My windows <Yeah>. are down. <laughs> it's fake. Uh, BMW have done a great job of making this car sound. It's the same engine as a Mini. So they're pushing, they have speakers on the outside of the car? No, they, 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 uh, let me just say the sound on the outside is not is not. Oh, I've heard one fly sound. by. It's not the natural sound. So what, how are they doing it? They're pumping uh, music I think it's through? done with a bunch of, no, I don't think it's electronic on the outside, but it's Wait, are these a bunch theories? of theories. Are these conspiracy no, theories? No, Okay. They, they told us it's not, it's not, it's the same engine in the i8 as the it's Mini. It's just making stuff don't, up. <laughs> don't get me wrong. It does sound great. It drives great. It's an amazing car. But uh, I thought it sounded, the three-cylinder engine cannot sound that great on its own. <laughs> <laughs> I love a car that's you. loud. Yeah, well, you like the Dodge Durango. We were talking about this earlier on the SRT. Mm-hmm. Um, you, have you ever driven a Hellcat or a Demon? I have not. And? Oh, God. I said you I haven't. Do I haven't you want driven. to? Yeah, I want to. All right. Um, I do not want to be in the car. <laughs> Why? Oh, come on, man. <laughs> She's like, I, I like I like cars that are loud. I've never driven a Hellcat, though. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> uh, she's, uh, I don't know. She's a good driver, aren't you? I think I'm an excellent driver, but don't all people think they're excellent? Eighty percent of people. Yep. We, we we just had this conversation. We too. did just have this conversation. Eighty percent of statistics are made up on the spot. Volvo did a Volvo did a, show, uh, a research that said eighty percent of drivers think they're better than the other drivers <laughs> on their own. The math and have you ever been in a car and the other person's driving and you think I need to get out of this car because uh, it's so bad. This week. <laughs> this week. Yeah. This week. I have a list yeah, of people serious, I want to drive A running with. list. I mean, it's like, tough. Especially Jonas. My parents are getting older, and man, sometimes when my mom's driving, I just think, we're all going to die. There are so many journalists. They, they claim to be auto journalists, and we get on the track, and we're like, wow, you can write really well. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was on a Jeep program with a journalist that thought he was like the best off-roader of all time, and I, halfway through the course, I got out of the car. Yep. And I walked myself out of the co- out of the course. I'm not gonna lie, off roading scares me. Nick's good at it. He's not. He, not he great, has no fear. Off roading to me is frustrating because you have to go slow and you have to navigate rocks. I'm much happier but when on, you're. Yeah, but I'm much <laughs> happier on uh, like gravel tracks. Like truck racing would be what I would do. Mm-hmm. Like on gravel track, like truck rally. Uh-huh. I do ba- Baja Rally, yeah, Truck Rally, the sort of stuff that Shab Balch from Chevy does. How can we get ourselves signed up for that, Nick? I'd like to do that, too. I think it's this bunch of training. There's a company that will take you to San Diego and across the border to Encinita and do it. We'll, talk more, we'll talk more about that. Coming up, we're going to talk about RVs. I, I've kind of decided I want to buy an RV. And I'm going to tell you why you don't. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, and we're going to have the two experts on of RVs. Alan Taylor, uh, who does, who will be doing uh, Regis and, not Regis and Kelly, Kelly and Ryan and uh, Mike Cadell. yeah. yeah. They'll be coming up next. Keep listening. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is coming up. Start your engines and you're off. 
back to our auto expert with Nick Miles. Um, I we talked about this a little bit, and I, all I remember much from the conversation was uh, we talked to Alan Taylor about grey water in your uh, grey and black water in your RV. That's all I can remember much about our conversation. Honestly, that's uh, a pretty important thing to remember. Um, but we, uh, I have sort of decided, <laughs> I've decided that we want. I wanted to buy an RV because uh, my accountant's telling me that uh, the interest is 100% tax deductible. Uh, so that that's probably a good I- idea. So uh, we thought we'd have him back on. We were supposed to have uh, Mike Cordell on as well with him, but Mike's very busy cleaning his RV off, which he does. We'll we'll get him on the phone in a minute or two. But Alan joins us again because uh, I wanted to talk more about RVing and the the fun experience and actually buying your first RV. Um, Alan, you're getting ready for the New York Auto Show in which you'll do uh, Kelly and Ryan. It's Ryan again, isn't it? Ryan Ryan Seacrest, right? He's still the co-host. Well, let's clarify. Let's clarify. I will not be doing anybody. I will be on the show live with Kelly. Good for you. ABC, yes. Live, live on ABC for the whole week, uh, revealing cars. You know, you don't need to clarify every time you're on. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, you're starting to sound defensive. Me, I just have a dirty mind. I guess. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you know, you'll be doing the show. What are you going to be showing? I could tell you, but I'd have to kill the entire <laughs> thing. Um, what does that do? Is there anything? Is it all secret then? It's all secret. Yes, the cars you'll have them running. Like, I see. This is a setup. You're trying to get me to lose my job because you want it. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> Honestly, no. You know, Alan. Alan, I promise you, right now, that is Alan. That is Alan Taylor all over that job, uh, and and it would never be the same. Like they they wheel you out in a wheelchair in 30 years' time, it'll still be an Alan Taylor gig. You're funny. Well, I can tell you this much. They they break it down into five categories, like, you know, family cars, green cars, uh, newest SUVs, you know, most sexy car, whatever. Um, and then, you know, funny enough, the the cars sometimes actually fit across two or three categories. So, you know, it, 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 it boils down to this, a week of unveiling brand new vehicles from the New York Auto Show live on... Uh, ABC, which is really fun. It's my 20th year, Nick. 20 wow. years. I can't believe it. So you started um, when you were 12. We should just clarify that. Yeah, no, I had black hair, and now I have white hair. <laughs> 20 <laughs> years. Terrible. Yeah, wait, you're a great... Wait, you... Were all of your kids born when you first started that? Yeah, actually, my oldest is 31, just had a baby. My youngest is 20, so uh, I you- think... Yeah, matter of fact, yeah, I, uh, you know... They were all little kids, but it's been a fun run, just like you. I mean, I see you on TV all over the place. By the way, congratulations. You have oh, thanks, killed it. And truthfully, you know, I remember when I heard about what you and uh, Mike Cuddell were going to do, and I thought, my auto expert, our auto, what is that crap? You guys, what is the deal? You guys are auto experts. I love it. I mean, I feel, I feel like every time you're on the radio or on television or – uh, you know, Mike on Fox and Friends. I'm like, oh my god, I got to get my game up. You know, mm-hmm. you know what's funny? Well, you, you're you're already at the top. You're uh, we look up to you. We we all aspire to be Alan Taylor because uh, yeah. you obviously have you have ABC, you have Ryan and Kelly, you have the the New York Auto Show Car Week. Uh, I you know what's super interesting about this is what, the reason we came up with our auto expert as a name, Mike and I was we were doing live TV from the auto show, and uh, the the stations were saying, here's our auto expert, you know, on on Fox Sports right. or Fox. Fox and oh, Friends, brilliant. Nick Miles, Mike Cadell. And so we like, you know, we both looked at each other and Mike Googly says, the website's available. So we bought it and ended <laughs> up with our auto expert. And it spawned quite a, you know, a huge company now, uh, which is yeah. we're super excited about, although I, I have hardly have time to 
uh, you know, even think now there's so much going on. But ultimately, uh, your your congratulations are well received, and and uh, we wouldn't be anywhere without someone trailblazing the industry like you. So we need to thank you uh, for for making it well, easier for us. Right back at you, and I just googled our RV expert, and I've just <laughs> bought it. So I'll be your expert for RVs. What do you need to know? I, I need to know everything. So here's the deal. Um, uh, let's talk about RVs. I want to take the next half an hour or so to talk about RVs. First of all, explain to me the different categories. If, so if you've never owned an RV, uh, an, an RV or a motorhome, as they seem to be called, it, this is you know, it's the similar but the different from a trailer. A trailer would, you would tow with, a th- with another vehicle, but an RV has the motor and, and the engine inside the vehicle. It's part no, of the vehicle, no, right? No, Stick to your category, please. Uh, RV is <laughs> for recreation vehicle. Right, so... Gracious. So a motorhome, all right, let's go to a motorhome. A motorhome is okay. where you would, you tow, you, you, you drive the vehicle itself. It's no towing It's anything. the Queen's English, Alan. you got to get on the Queen's I English. Love, I love that he doesn't know all these categories. It's like, I love it. <laughs> I don't. This is like, I could I could tell you about a bushing and a hydro bushing and what the difference are between them, but when it comes to recreational vehicles, I'm out to lunch. Oh, my gosh. Well, I can tell you right now, my truck needs new muffler bearings, so we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I, I, I would love to – I want to talk to you about hydro bushings because they are super interesting. But anyway, let's get on to that later. Let's, like recreational vehicles. So motorhome is where there's a where – where the, the engine is part of the, of the cab, right? Yeah, and actually because we have electric vehicles and the motor – the electric motor in an electric vehicle is actually a motor. It should be called an engine home because uh, – Naturally, you know, I mean, a uh, an internal combustion engine is an engine, an electric motor is a motor. So, really, motorhome is not the right name, but you oh. know what I'm saying. Otherwise, motor trend would be called engine trend. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, motor, yeah, motorhomes are definitely motorized vehicles. Let's just say it that way. And you know, there's so many different kinds these days because they make everything from a van, you know, all the, all the way up to a, a big diesel pusher, which I had a 45 footer. And uh, that's wait, wait, wait. so so what does pusher mean? Tell me what pusher means. Well, come on, think about it. Engine yeah. in the back, it's pushing you down the road. But All yeah, right. you're okay. right. It's, no, it's I get, pushing. I get it. Because in in my life, pusher is something completely different. Okay. That's, <laughs> fun fact: <laughs> I used to own an RV. Uh oh, we're getting no, kicked out no, of the show. <laughs> honestly, I saw him going down the road one day. And I said, what happened to Nick? And they said, oh, he broke down because he drives a Rolls Canardly. That means it rolls downhill and can hardly go up the top. Oh, poosh. All right, so a pusher has the engine in the back as opposed to an engine yeah. in the front. All right. Correct. So you- the big, big diesel pusher motorhomes, or the engine is in the back, and, and yes, the, and it's, here's the deal. That those things, you know, I mean, you can buy them, you know, maybe, you know, $50,000 on up to $2 million. Yeah. Uh, the $50,000 ones you wouldn't want to touch because they're usually old and worn out, and these things go down the road and rattle themselves apart after a while. Right. But uh, those those are like land yachts. Let's call the big diesel pushers land yachts. Right. You can spend $2 million, even even a little more than $2 million. I actually saw one uh, motorhome that was a big diesel pusher motorhome that actually also converted into a big yacht that would actually go in the water. Um, you can Google that one. Motor I don't believe you. Goes Done. In the water. Yeah, take no, my money. <laughs> oh but, my but god! The deal. There's so many different kinds of motorhomes that I always tell everybody: no matter what you think you want to buy, once you've done all your research and you've seen all your friends of different kinds, go out and rent one. Go to Garving.com 
and they'll tell you where you can rent one or, or a place near you, like a El Monte, um, or they have. Um, there's all different kinds of, of RV rental places, but there's some big ones out there. But GoRVing.com is the best place. So but you can rent one and live in it for a couple of days, just so you can go. Oh my God, this is not big enough, or Oh my God, this is too big. You know, whatever it might be. All right, so I have a quick question. Can I bring my dogs in a rental? Yeah, you, you have to ask them in advance. But there okay. may be a little extra fee for it, but most of the time, yes, because most most people do travel with animals. Yeah, but mm-hmm. he's got a lot of dogs. Like, like I wonder, five, wonder like how six, many five. dogs they would allow. Well, I think you just don't tell him. You say, can I have a dogs in this? And then, then you bring go, 10. Yeah, can I have yeah, eight dogs? Is that what you said? <laughs> can I have dogs in this? Oh, oh eight dogs. <laughs> torn apart and this couch is ripped open. No, no. My dogs, are, my dogs are better behaved than many people's children. I can assure you. I've met their oh. children. <laughs> um, my, yeah. my, you know, you'll find that most motorhomes these days, the, the newer ones, they're going away from carpet. They're going to hardwood floors and tile. And just for that reason, because. Who wants to go in there and vacuum? You know, sweeping up things a lot easier. Yeah, you could vacuum with a shop vac if you got a hardwood floor or tile. Then it's little itty-bitty thin tile so it doesn't weigh very much. Or they make hardwood floors that are rubberized so they can get wet. Um, you know, the, today's RVs, recreation vehicles, are so well designed in comparison to the way they were 10, 15 years ago. And think about it. They're still made by hand by the Amish because that's honest to goodness. You go see these factories. I was in... Uh, South Bend, Indiana, and man, like they fight over the Amish. You know why? They're good craftsmen. All right, all right. Really good craftsmen. Alan, stand by. I want to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you the difference between A, B, and C because I I don't want to be driving something that's bigger than my house. On I've seen I've seen them. They're bigger than my house, and you said they could cost up to two million dollars. We'll find out more from Alan Taylor, RV, on our Auto Expert. Stay tuned. There's more to come with Nick Miles. Jump right in and put the pedal to the floor. Our auto expert with Nick Miles continues. On the phone with us, Alan Taylor, uh, most famously known as the best radio and TV personality to talk about anything on wheels. Is that right, Alan? I got it right. Uh, I my opinion, yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're talking about RVs. So uh, when, I, when I've been searching inventory... Uh, for RVs, there's A, B, and C RVs, like they're A, B, and C class. So, what are, right. what are the differences? How how do you how do you separate them in your head? Well, okay, let's start with A class. Uh, you, we should probably start with with a B class, and then go to C, and then A. It's very confusing because it's not what you might think. A class is the biggest. It's twenty six to forty five feet, thirteen thousand to thirty thousand pounds. That's the big guy. The, the next one is the C-Class. You would think it would be B, but no, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting how they do this. But anyway, I think because B-Class was something that they decided we better figure out how to give it a name. But anyway, it goes from A-Class, which is the big one, to C-Class, which is 20 foot to 30 feet. That's like the cab over, you know, where you're like driving a van and then there's a big motorhome stuck on the back of it. Right. And then the, the B-Class, uh, is basically what you would consider van life. That's all the big vans, the the Sprinter vans that are converted into them, all the way down to the Ford, you know, the Econoline vans and the, the different vans that they make. Anything that's a van that's converted into a motorhome uh, is the B-Class. So, yeah, there's your classes. So riddle me this, Alan Taylor. How come the B-Class, which is the smallest, is often the most expensive? 
Well, I told you it's confusing, and actually, uh, <laughs> the, big ones, <laughs> the big ones are um, the most expensive, obviously, the big giant ones, the, oh. you know, the pushers and things like that. But I get where you're coming from. Most of the time, uh, if you take those those van chassis, like I happen to have a Coachman. I'm looking at it right now. It's 25 foot. Right. It's basically got a Chevy van nose on it. They lop off the van right behind the driver and passenger seat. And they put this big, you know, RV on the back of it, like a uh, a camper that would go in the back of your truck, but it actually is on the back of this van. My guess is it's because it's cheaper to build that vehicle. You have a little more space. You're not having to really engineer things inside of a van. Uh, plus, a lot of times, you know, you're starting out with something pretty darn nice, a nice expensive van. Uh, you know, the whole van and not just the, the chassis of it. Yeah. And then you're having to convert it to be able to carry all that extra weight and make sure that it's still good ride and handling. And then you're having to put all the packaging in it. And people want a lot of luxury. So you're using a lot of, you know, leather and expensive, you know, um, tile and all of the fact that they uh, they want the luxury in their van and they still want to be able to sleep in it and put a little itty-bitty bathroom in there. And I, I don't know. I mean, the answer is I don't freaking know. It's crazy. <laughs> So all right, so you want to buy one of those? They're like one hundred and twenty-five thousand bucks. Yeah, like you can I, buy a nice C class for like sixty-nine thousand dollars or fifty-nine thousand. Yeah, I was. I have a twenty-five foot coachman. I love it. I was looking at you know. I was thinking. Well, listen, I'm, I'm a I am a RV motorhome, uh, uh, you know, virgin. Basically, that's what I am. Right. I have no experience. I need to do it easily where i mean i can drive big vehicles and i'm a problem with that but you know it's got to be something i'm getting used to and i don't yeah. want i don't want to be getting an, um, a giant coach something the size of a greyhound bus because that right. would be then you have to tow something and that's a whole nother thing um i want something that's manageable and small megan you had a you you've had an rv right i had a class c rv and did you manage to get around was it your first and only rv it, it was my only RV. I had it for several years, and I drove it across country many times. So if you you could cope with it, no problem, right? No issue. Right. I mean, so see, so yeah. you, what would you start with, Alan? You know me. We've known each other for for twenty yeah. odd years. We've been friends. What would I? What would you think I should start with? Well, I'll tell you what. That the answer to that is directly proportionate to the thickness of your wallet. Back to your <laughs> point. Why are they so much money? I personally... Well, let's talk about the I average person then, what the average person well, can afford. Let, let, let me answer. Well, again, the affordability factors, you know, that's a whole other story. But I think <laughs> I, on which state talking, I, was, I was thinking about it. And the fact is that, you know, the Class C, like my coachman, uh, the van nose is nice. I'm used to driving. And, and most everybody's driven a, uh, you know, a full-size van from GM Ford or Dodge. Easy to drive. You don't hardly look behind you. You know, you don't. You just you just have fun. It's easy. Okay, but the problem is they're a little bit loud. You go down the road and things are rattling and things are squeaking because, you know, they're they're kind of handmade and they're all put together and, and just crammed onto the back of that van. Versus when you buy a, a Mercedes Sprinter van, for example, um, they're putting it inside of this well-engineered vehicle, and they're quieter. They're a little more like, dare I say, an airstream inside to where just even saying that says luxury, says quiet, says quality. And I think that's why you're going to spend so much more money. You'll see that Airstream does partner with Sprinter to make their 
their uh, Class B. Yeah, but uh, Nick isn't home. a kite surfer. I mean, if you're going to have a Mercedes <laughs> Sprinter, you got to be like, you're going to have to get into some sort of like physical sport, Nick. I'm a rock climber. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know what? Personally, though, I would suggest, like I said, rent one of each. Go take a, a weekend and rent a Class B, a Sprinter van type, you know, motorhome. And then rent a Class C, and you'll see the difference. You go, oh, I get it. I really, I really wish that I had rented one initially. Yeah. All right. Yep. Alan, when I rent one, I'm going to come down to your house and park it in your front yard. Is that right? Listen, I have RV hookups over here. Come on over, brother. Can you get rid of my black water for me? I will. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm in. for that. <laughs> watch watch Alan next week, by the way. He's going to be on uh, Regis. No, it's Ryan Not and Kelly. Week, week after next. Week, week after, after next. next. New York Auto Show. Big yeah. star. Alan Taylor. Love him. Uh, ABC. And he's going to reveal. Co- I love this guy. Like we are, we are brothers from another mother. Alan Taylor, everybody. We'll be right back. It hasn't been Regis for a decade. Our auto expert with Nick Miles is on the way. Our auto expert continues. Here's your host, Nick Miles. Uh, we have obviously been uh, talking a lot about RVs. We should get back to um, other cars, recreational vehicles, to uh, the future of vehicling, which, uh, as we all know, is probably going to be electric. Sarah Shelton joining us from U.S. News and World Report. Uh, Sarah, you actually put an event on in Portland every year as part of the Northwest Automotive Press Association called uh, Drive Revolution. Give us a, a capsule of what the event is. Okay, uh, absolutely, Nick. I'd love to. Drive Revolution focuses on alternatively fueled vehicles, um, a lot of electric, some plug-in hybrids, a few hybrid models as well, and on occasion we even get a fuel cell vehicle in there. So, so the intent of it is it, it provides an arena where people can, where the automotive journalists can drive these back-to-back and get a real sense of how do these compare from one to the next. So... There used to be uh, very few hybrid vehicles, a sort of Toyota yeah. and Ford, and uh, then Nissan came along with the Leaf, and and now uh, the market's pretty stuffed with them, including America's very own Tesla. So how do you choose who yeah. comes to your event? Well, one of the things that I try to always get is um, a vehicle that has some type of zero emission mode, whether it's an all-electric vehicle or it's a plug-in hybrid. We try to prioritize those vehicles first. But having said that, we're also trying to give automakers a chance to share some of their newer technologies with us. Um, So one example of this is a lot of vehicles now are are, um, integrating 48-volt hybrid systems into them. And, and there are some unusual vehicles, like the Jeep Wrangler, for example, now has a 48-volt system in it. And so we're also trying to give automakers a platform to talk about why this is important environmentally and also performance-wise for, for consumers. I, I think it was kind of comical this week. We looked at the breaking news that the Ram 1500 became the second best-selling <laughs> yeah. vehicle in the United States. Uh, finally, uh, you know, they've been gnawing at the heels of Chevrolet on the Silverado for years. It became uh, the number two. And then uh, that's also it also has a mild hybrid in the V6 version. That's and right. technically, at the end of the year, that is going to be the best selling hybrid in America. Right. That's that's right, because it also operates with a 48 volt system. Exactly. So 
So again, Prius selling 58,000. They're probably going to sell around 200,000 of those by the end of the year. It's going to be quite monumental. Uh, hydrogen. They'll, they'll probably get a bit of a boost as well because they've got the new all-wheel drive Prius out. And I think in some markets, I know, I know like in the Portland area, they're saying that it's going to be a 75% saturation rate with all-wheel drive mo- models to the front-wheel drive models. Yeah, you know, and interesting enough, David Lee is going to be on the show uh, in a little while to tell us all about that, uh, the new all-wheel drive Prius. The interesting thing is, now at this point is, People like Lexus, like Toyota, have said they don't want to charge more for their hybrid versions. They want to charge maybe $1,500 more, but that's the max. Is that going to make a big difference to car buyers? I think that's going to start closing down the gap and start helping them make, um, you know, when you're when you're making the decision with your wallet and it's thousands of dollars extra and you're not going to see that return on investment for another seven or eight years, sometimes that's, that's a, a hard bargain to, to figure out. But as these prices are coming down, um, I think more consumers are going to start getting comfortable with, with going towards hybrids. So what about hydrogen, which are technically electric vehicles as well? Uh, it's just yeah. the electricity is created by the hydrogen. Uh, is, is hydrogen still a possibility? Because I was excited that hydrogen was coming along and, and was going to give right. some sort of alternative way of driving vehicles. But there isn't the infrastructure. There's no places to refill right. your hydrogen vehicle unless you're in Southern California or maybe some selected areas. Is hydrogen a non-starter? You know, I, I know that when you ask specific car makers like Toyota, they say, we're not ruling anything out right now. And so I, I think some automakers are still sort of experimenting, does this work, what does the model look like, how are consumers responding to this. But unfortunately, the fact of the matter is, just like you hit on, infrastructure just isn't there. And and I've talked to the manager of the very first um, hydrogen station, retail station down in California, and, um, you know, six months after opening, they were still encountering so many roadblocks that – it's going to take some, probably some major legislative change and um, a lot of consumer change in order to start making that uh, more of a reality in our economy today, I think. What are the most significant hydrogen vehicles that have uh, shown their faces uh, in the last 10 years? Because I think the Mirai is probably one of the only ones that mm-hmm. we have seen. Uh, that's, no, I guess that's not true. The Insight, I think the, the Honda, Honda had the Insight. Uh, the Honda Clarity yeah. has one. Oh, the Clarity. That's what I'm thinking of, the Clarity. And then the, Hyundai had one only on the East Coast. It never came as far as California. Was that the... Uh, was it the Tucson? I yeah. Think? Oh, I thought the Tucson was in California. So, again, we could name those. That's three. Can yeah. we name any others? Yeah. I mean, BMW tested hydrogen vehicles. I don't think they ever had one which was commercially available. They've not brought one into production in, in the U.S. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I happen to drive um, the, the Clarity, and, and, you know, it's funny. It feels just like an EV. There's no reason that drivability-wise people shouldn't be um, adopting these. Um, it's just I, right now that infrastructure really – even even when it comes to electric vehicles – we're finding enough of a lack of the infrastructure that I think that's affecting the take rate just on EVs, and we have far more charging stations around the country right now. I forgot one of the most important ones, the Hyundai Nexo, uh, which is the oh, new yeah, one they just came great. out with. You. I drove that in yeah. Sa- uh, Sacramento recently. That was kind of what interesting. You, um, you know, again, just like an electric vehicle, uh, they spruce up the insides to be very super luxury, and they make them look mm-hmm. really great. Again, I would drive a hydrogen vehicle if I could find somewhere to fuel them. I think police yeah. departments should have hydrogen vehicles. I could, I could see Gresham Place and uh, 
James Musen driving a hydrogen vehicle. I could see the the team out there. I could see Portland police driving hydrogen vehicles. It would make a lot more sense. Zero emissions. Right. Uh, they could right. refill easily. The trouble is the infrastructure is not there. I know in New York City right. they did a lot of natural gas taxes and garbage trucks. Uh, that was hopefully the the transmission fuel of the future. But unfortunately, that sort of died out. And now it's difficult to to do that. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, especially with a fleet like the police department with the long range of an of a fuel cell and how quick it is to, to you know, to refuel, it does make a lot of sense. But um, it's going to take a lot of work to move us in that direction. And um, and I think it's very difficult both to shift people's mindset to that, but also to to get the funding to, to build that up. I mean, look how hard it's been just to get people onto the hybrid bandwagon, much less right. trying to get them on hydrogen. Yeah. No, it, it, it takes a long, it's like a cruise ship buying car buying. It takes a long time to shift the direction of people. Right, right. Well, and it, it's unfortunate that a couple of things I think are shifting us away from that right now. Um, low gas prices are great, but they're not helping the take rate when it comes to um, alternatively fueled vehicles. And then it's also a shame to see some of the incentives start to, to drop off because we have seen that those have had a very positive influence when it comes to people looking towards plug-in hybrids and electric vehicles. Yeah, the interesting thing is, I know you and I both do the same TV show quite regularly on uh, the Chinese, one of the Chinese television networks, so we comment yeah. on cars. And I was on there yeah. this week talking about uh, electric cars. You know, in China, you can't get a license plate your vehicle in Shanghai or Beijing unless it's, it's electric. It's almost impossible right. to get a license plate for a gas car. And, and although the net uh, the net environmental value of going to electricity is probably zero because that electricity, at least in China's case, 66% uh, of their electricity comes from coal-fired power stations. Uh, right. It doesn't make much difference. But what it does do is shift the smog and the pollution away from the cities and put it more in the country. Uh, yeah. And if you've ever been in Shanghai and Beijing, you can hardly breathe some days when it's bad. Right, right. Well, and I think that's a great example of by by setting the correct policies, you can get people to make those shifts towards towards, you know, buying um, some type of, of vehicle that produces lower carbon emissions. And then when it comes to China, you know, once they have more people driving electric vehicles, then they can fill in the infrastructure and, and you know, be, be trying to get cleaner energy from there. Um, we're sort of coming at it from the opposite. End but, of but right Sarah, now. we live in America. Aren't we supposed to have a choice? I mean, it's, it's nice to have policies that push us to do certain things, but this is, you know, we, we in America, we're supposed to have a choice about, and it's supposed to be an individual decision, right? Well, you know, I think that's true to some extent, but I think that we have to keep in mind that the, the individual's choice is one thing, but we also have to keep in mind the greater good and, and what's important for the greater good, um, both when it comes to our cities, also our country and, and the, the planet itself as a whole. What do you think about electric vehicles now? Uh, we're seeing a lot more electric vehicles appear. Uh, we we initially saw just the I-Pace and the Tesla cars uh, in the luxury segment. On the opposite end, uh, it was Nissan Leaf, uh, Chevy Chevrolet Bolt, B-O-L-T, um, and several other sparse, just purely electric vehicles. Uh, it looks like this year there's going to be a bumper stock of new electric vehicles appearing. Mm. You're going to see the Audi e-tron. You're going to see the Mercedes-Benz MQC. Uh, you're going to see a lot more electric vehicles hitting the market. You're going to see pictures of the Model Y. Yes. <laughs> Lots of pictures.
years. Probably won't <laughs> see the actual vehicle, uh, although we could ho- be hopeful that uh, that gets produced. So potentially a lot of <laughs> new, a, a lot of new electric vehicles, right? So what what's the news? What's the buzz? What's the gossip? Is this more of a real uh, a real option for everyday Americans? Well, I'll tell you, one of the most exciting things that I see are not just the um, the fact that so many electric vehicles are now available, but it's the price of them. Um, you know, whereas before, when the Model S first came to market, very few people were shopping in that price range. But now when you have like the Model 3, for example, we finally have our $35,000 model. And then we also have things um, like Hyundai Kona. They have their new EV um, the Soul EV, the 2020, where, you know, we haven't quite seen it yet, but we're hopeful it's coming soon. But these put electric vehicles much more in the affordable range for what the what the average consumer can, can afford and, and can buy it off. You, and so that's the part that is exciting for me to see is that the prices are coming down into a range that more people can, can oh. handle with their, with their budgets. So let me, let me ask you this. Do you own an electric vehicle? I do not own an electric vehicle. Would you, I, um, would you? I absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, right now I need to have a larger vehicle just to, to haul, you know, all the family and the dog and everything like that. But the next vehicle I buy, absolutely, it's going to have a zero emission mode to it. Just to let you know that the Jaguar I-Pace has the same interior room as the XJ. It's big. I'll, I'll tell you what, I <laughs> love that. I, I had a chance to drive that a few weeks ago. And uh, that, to me, that's a beautiful vehicle. Yeah, it was my car of the year. It was a little bit more affordable. No, I, mean, I honestly, eighty thousand dollars compared to oh, some God. of the other electric vehicles is way, uh, way, and plus that's before any. There are people in Portland laughing right now, Nick. You can go buy an eighty thousand dollar car. Yeah. Everybody, nobody, everybody, what? Nobody, what? Nobody. You're kidding me. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, the uh, deal with the Jaguar right now, too, is you can get 0% financing on it. The right. problem is, is that they're not available at all. Yeah. Well, you, and then you could get it over 80 years. It's $1,000 oh a God. year. Oh, my God. Sign your life away. I would, I, would, I would also tell people, don't please don't go, not, don't buy an electric vehicle. My suggestion is always go lease it because yep. by the time you lease this up, the technology will have changed so dramatically much yeah. that you will want the latest vehicles. Uh, I see electric vehicles coming down in price to be quite reasonable. All right, Sarah Shelton, you can read all this, all this stuff at US News and World Report. Uh, we'll tell you more about Drive Revolution as it gets closer to the date this summer and EV Roadmap, which is the big electric uh i guess meeting of all the electric minds is also going to be happening in portland oregon we're going to tell you all about that sarah thanks for being on the show coming up we've got more really cool stuff including toyota rav4 and more don't go away there's more to come with nick miles our auto expert will be right back it's our auto expert with nick miles uh, we've been around the houses on this show. We've been talking about RVs. We've been talking about trips to Greece, to Mexico. Uh, quite a lot of stuff been going on. But I want to turn to something that's very home in the Northwest and something that people in the Northwest would be super excited about. And that's the uh, the Toyota Prius. 
I would say if there's one state or one part of the country that's more Prius than anywhere else, do you think it's the Northwest? In all the places I've ever been, I have never seen more Priuses than I have seen in Portland, Oregon. Is it Priuses or is it Pri? I don't Pri. know. Pri, Pri, Pri. I think everyone everyone's thinking Pri. Don't we know uh, someone from Toyota? Yeah, we do. Probably that's that. That, my friend, is why uh, David Lee is joining us on the phone to talk about. David, is it Pri or Prius? <laughs> That's a great one. You know, if you ask the official folks at Toyota, it's Pri. If you ask me, it's Priuses. But, but yeah, Pri is our official. But how many S's are in Priuses? Yeah, because is there an apostrophe yeah. at the end? Is it Priuses? Are there two S's? <laughs> okay, uh, just know, stop. Okay. That's something we never solved either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my friend, thank you for taking some of your uh, your time out on the weekend to join us to talk about Toyota. You're going to be with us for the next half hour. Let's start off this uh, half hour of the show to talk about uh, something that we never thought Toyota would do with the Prius, and that's make an all-wheel drive version. But at uh, the L.A. Auto Show, there it was, shiny and bright on the floor, uh, the Toyota Prius all-wheel drive. Uh, consumers of the Prius begging for this for quite a long time, right? Yeah, they really have been in certain parts of the country, at least. Uh, I'm based out of our Denver field office, and our Mountain States market really, really has been itching for any passenger cars we can do on all-wheel drive. So this has been a very welcome thing here, too. So one of the biggest challenges, putting an all-wheel drive unit in it, I mean, you know, Toyota know how to do all-wheel drive, plenty of all-wheel drive vehicles, but uh, one of the challenges, you make it heavier. Um, the big thing about the Prius vehicle is that 58 miles a gallon, some people getting a lot more than that. Uh, how, did, how did Toyota offset that when they put the car together? Because that would be my first thing is like, what? Well, we could be getting bad fuel economy. Yeah, that was really a big challenge with this vehicle. We, we've had heavier hybrid vehicles with Highlander and RAV, but with the Prius all-wheel drive, we didn't have to worry about our weight. The first step we took from a production standpoint came back for the 2016 model when we introduced our current generation, and we came out with one of our new, uh, what we call Toyota New Global Architecture chassis, and a lot of these chassis are set up to accept an all-wheel drive set of components up front. So being a purpose-built hybrid as Prius is, when we came out with that 2016 model, that chassis was made to accept these parts, and then it was just a matter of uh, when we would want to choose to adopt them and if we would choose to adopt them. So does it perform, I mean, made on a new chassis, but does it perform like a, like the, the, the Prius that we're so used to driving? Yeah, the great thing about it, at least from what I've noticed in testing, is that it really is a system that's not obtrusive to the driver, uh, it, it works mostly at lower speeds, but it will contribute at higher speeds as needed. But when you're up at highway speeds, unless you've got some kind of a slippage condition, it's going to drive like a regular front-wheel drive Prius. So it's going to feel very familiar to the existing Prius owners out there who may be considering going to this for foul-weather driving. Now, you did have a launch event where you had uh, this vehicle, and Megan, uh, you, you got to go and drive this on the ice, didn't you? I did. I went to Steamboat Springs, Colorado, to the Bridgestone Winter Driving School, and they had the, the new Prius all-wheel drive out and, there. And, and first impressions? I mean, it handled pretty well. I mean, Were you it was, expecting it not to? Yeah, of course. So I, mean, I, have to, I have to educate you here. Car companies don't put events on when their cars aren't the king. Well, I know. <laughs> they already do that. They know when you get there that they're going to show you what it's all it's all about. It did really good, though. I mean, they we were doing some really tight turning on ice, snow and ice, and it did fine. Uh, but one, but one of the things is, is it? Correct me if I'm wrong. It's only a hybrid up to a certain speed, correct? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I was actually there with you. I don't know if you remember, but I was I was part of that group. But yeah, it's a hybrid vehicle all the time. It's gas and electric, and it can operate just like the regular Prius on either gas only or electric only or a blend of both. But that all-wheel drive system does have speed limitations that it operates within. And, and real quickly, zero to six, it's in all-wheel drive mode. And between six and 43 miles an hour, it's in an on-demand mode where it will try to stay in front-wheel drive, but will give you all-wheel drive power as needed. You know, and that could be front-wheel slippage or hard acceleration or a skid condition. Those type of things can, can cause it to then go into all-wheel drive mode. And then beyond 43 miles an hour, it's a front-wheel drive car. All right. So, and, and, and Megan, do you feel like, felt like there any other Prius that you've driven? Because Prius drivers love their Prius and they'd hate you to mess with it, right? They do love their Priuses. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, what was the question? So did it, did it have like, <laughs> hey, concentrate, I'm over here. Uh, did, it, did it look, did it, did it feel like a, the Prius that you've driven that was a two-wheel drive or a front-wheel drive? It did at times, yeah. It, uh, so when you did the when when you develop this vehicle, is it? Do you think the sales, uh, David, are going to be mostly above the Mason Dixon line where it snows, or do you think that people may be taking this as more of an adventure vehicle? Because I have some guys down in San Diego where I'm on the Fox station down there that enjoy going with their Priuses to the beach, and they've never been able to drive on the beach with their surfboard, you know, sticking out the back, but now they could be. Yeah, my my understanding is initially here we're looking to put out about 20 to 25% of the total volume in the U.S. as all-wheel drive models. But you're going to see us focus those cars, though, in the markets that we perceive them to be most effective. Uh, so, for example, in, in the uh, six-state Denver region territory that I work in, we're looking at about a 40% all-wheel drive to 60% front-wheel drive uh, breakdown. So I would say that it's very possible your friends in San Diego can get them. They'd want to con- consult their dealer and see what the availability is. But expect them to be more available in the snowier states. And, and just looking around the car uh, inside and out, is there, apart from the all-wheel drive is there and maybe badging, is there ways to define the regular Prius from the all-wheel drive Prius? Do they look different? Do they badge, you know, they, they design differently? Yeah, Prius actually is, is going through a mid-cycle change this model year. So the all-wheel drive model participates in that. So all of them are going to see some new headlights and taillights and some new interior uh, trim bits and some updates to some electronics. But visually from the exterior, best I can tell, and, and Megan, I don't know if you could tell. I, I don't know if we had a front-wheel drive one there. But the badging is going to be the key there. There's not another way to really see anything unless you put it on a list. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the pricing and uh, and fuel economy. So pricing and fuel economy of the vehicle when it comes to market. Well, I'll start with the fuel economy. You're going to, uh, if you compare it to a light grade front wheel drive model, you're going to lose two MPG across the board. Okay. Uh, uh, city, highway, and combined. Uh, and that's about as good as we could get on on that. You know, and, it is additional weight. And pricing? And then pricing here, let me see. It starts at 25380 All right. If you want to find yeah, out, 25380 All right, David Lee, stand by. We're going to come back to you and talk about RAV4 next. Okay. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. Welcome to the Fast Lane. Our auto expert with Nick Miles continues. 
bumper show today. Uh, we're covering everything. I, we didn't have a motorcycle segment. I guess we should do that. Uh, with, uh, we are talking uh, to David Lee. We've been talking about the uh, Bree new all-wheel drive Prius. And uh, now let's turn our sights to a vehicle which I really love. Uh, not that I don't love really? the all-wheel drive. I love the RAV4. I, love I didn't know that. the new RAV4. I think what uh, is it, it'll that be, you love so much? It, uh, it'll be the best-selling vehicle in its It class, is leagues, it? and it's like they threw the old Rav Four away in the trash, and they're like, "We need a brand new well, car." Well, it I is drove so it. Beautiful, so much you nicer. Did in, in the, nice, da- David. Is that right? Is it going to be the best-selling uh, vehicle in uh, the best-selling vehicle in its class next no year? No pressure. SUV. No pressure. Yeah. No, no pressure. Right? Yeah. Actually, gang, it it has been uh, the best-selling vehicle in its class for a bit nationally. And last year, it became the best-selling Toyota product nationally in the U.S. Uh, but once again, in our area here, where I'm currently working, it's been our bestseller for quite some time. Actually, I have to I have to it, tell it, you, it the, success. my things that are favorite about the, the Toyota that they're doing right now, and I just bought um, I just bought a new Lexus GX, so I'm in the family. But the thing the, the thing <laughs> I really like Toyota. What Lexus <laughs> is anti Toyota? Well, it's not Toyota. Yes, it is. Who owns Lexus? <laughs> oh, okay. It's Toyota. not Toyota, though. No. You know what I mean, David? No. David knows what I mean. No, it's upper class Toyota. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's, not Toyota. I like that. it's royalty. It's, it's the it's royalty, royalty of Toyota. Um, so, so I love, I love what Toyota are doing with design. So, one of the things is, it's never been a fulfilling design company. They've never really tried to make vehicles that were outstanding. And then last year, you guys came out with that sand color mm-hmm. in your trucks. I love ah, that yeah. color. Quick, was it quicksand? Yeah. Was it called? Yeah, desert sand, quicksand, something to that effect. Yeah, yeah. So that I love that color. And then this year, as if they could do any more, they you guys came out with that concrete gray color and that which, blue. Uh, yeah, the gray blue. So you had that light blue in the the light gray blue in the t- uh, Tacoma that I had, and then that orange. Yeah, that's what I have. Right, and the yeah. orange on the inside of the Rav Four. So I you had it in that concrete bluey color, and then the orange on the interior. Oh, I want that car. So have badly. you seen the new blue that they have? Which is oh, the it's bright, like that bright, brand new bright blue. Yeah, that, uh, that was on the Tacoma TRD, yeah, the right? Tundra and the Tacoma and the Forerunner. It's yeah. all yeah. All well, there was a new color on the Rav Four that I drove out there, and I can't remember what it was called. It's kind of a greenish, frosted. Yeah, that's our Luna Lunar. Was it lunar or something or other? Forgive me. Colors is like the worst part of my my expertise. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, I will tell you, like, colors, uh, you definitely, that interior, the orange. Uh, a lot of times, so I really like the new Hyundai Kona, which uh, I've been driving, and they came out with that uh, lime twist, that bright lime color, like Ryan's headphones. Not that anybody can see that apart from me, but that sort of lime twist color. Who's and, Ryan? Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then they came up with... Um, uh, several other really bright colors which i don't think i could have on a regular basis in my driveway i could i could i like the look of these cars i could see them on a showroom floor but i'm not sure i'd want to open my kitchen blinds and see it every day like this lime you know bright but yet the new toyota colors are subtle enough that they look really really cool and i could probably live in them on a day-to-day basis so not that color is why people buy cars, maybe except for me, because I'm kind of weird. But uh, by buying, people are buying the RAV4 just purely because of its capability, right? Yeah, yeah. Real quick, too, that color is lunar rock, Megan. That was the right. stuff that we were talking about. And, Nick, if you want that orange interior, you want to get yourself an adventure grade, because that is the one that has that orange trim. I oh, love it. For, 
Yes, but but for capabilities, really, that's where I think Rav has become a hit with the market. You know, as the market has shifted away from passenger cars, uh, we saw it overtake Camry at the end of 2018 in sales and outsold it by about 20,000 units. And we're seeing now that lead continue to expand. Uh, it, it really is about the right size, configurability of the interior, uh, performance. Uh, as you said before, too, last year's generation or last the previous generation did not have the acceleration and handling as the current vehicle. So you, you get a lot of that same good utility, but now you've got some performance, too, I think. I was seriously trying to find things wrong with it. Like I, I, when I had the car at a test drive and we, we shot the video, I was trying to find things that were wrong with it, and it was hard. I mean, I really had to be picky. And to be honest with you, none of them would have stopped me buying it because I would buy it anyway. But uh, it was hard to find anything that, you know, the styling on the exterior is really great. The roominess, the seats are comfortable, the electronics, Safety Sense 2.0, right? That's This is the first SUV to get that? Uh, it's not our first SUV, but it, it is something now that's become prevalent. Wait a second, for 2.0... Ooh, I'm trying to think if there's another one. I can't think. So it came in the uh, yeah. Corolla hatchback and the Avalon. Uh-huh. Oh, no, the That's Corolla right. hatchback, not the Avalon. Nope. And then I think this is the second vehicle released yep. since the Corolla hatchback. It is. I stand corrected. You're, you're on that. Yes, it is our first SUV to have the 2.0 version of TSS. Yes, it is. And, uh, you, got, and you guys added a lot more stuff to it, right? The panoramic sunroof, the rear vented seats. He did yeah, steering wheel. A lot of... Yes, a new technology. I think much better driver visibility, frankly, just just on the structure of the car. And then the cameras have been improved. Uh, the TSS 2.0 really helps. Uh, I can't wait. I, I get a car every six months. I have a summer and a winter car, and I'm going to get an XSE hybrid for this winter. I live up in the Rockies, and I, I'm going to take advantage. I would do, too, because uh, I think, Megan, did you enjoy driving it on ice? I did, yeah. And, and did it stop well? It, did, it stopped really well. I mean, you know, it, it just handles really well. It's funny though because during the during the briefing that they gave us, he mentioned that you wouldn't necessarily have off roaded last year's Rav Four Adventure, but this one you could. Right. I totally off roaded the one last year, and it did fine. <laughs> did you so. tell Toyota when you borrowed it you were off roading it? Don't don't tell us. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, uh, um, and and now, so what is the starting price of this? Because it's they're fairly reasonable if I look to the base model. Yeah, if you go, you know, if you go front wheel drive, they're 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 down in the twenties, and then of course they go up as you go into all wheel drive and then into hybrids. But uh, an LE front wheel driver starts at twenty five five, and then they they go up from there. They top out at about forty, just under. And that's pretty packed with all the latest technology. Yeah, we we try to offer when we have a popular product like this, we do it with Camry also, right? We'll offer a wide palette of of standard equipment and features. Uh, to offer it up to a lot of market segments. It's our intention to have a broad appeal here. What What's the secret to Toyota? Because uh, I purely bought my GX for the reason that I wanted it to last. I wanted to be able to start it every single time, and it wouldn't have an issue. I wanted to be able to sort of get in the garage after six months and you you know pile the dogs in the back and go to the dog park in the snow, and it would start every time. And that's something Toyota been super, super famous for. We never suggest this, but you could almost go and not change your oil for 100,000 miles, and it would still start every time, right? Yeah, obviously, I, I, from my seat, I can't can't uh, assume that, but I can tell you this: uh, our what we call quality, uh, durability, reliability, or QDR, is probably our our number one buyer motivation in most segments. Our car buyers look at it just kind of how you said it, Nick, where they want to be able to buy their their passenger car and have it for a couple hundred thousand miles and do nothing but maintenance. It's funny though; you start getting into our truck owners like Tacoma and Tundra. 
the Tundra owner wants capability towing and hauling and stuff with that reliability. But a Tacoma owner who's more of an adventuresome driver, they, they want their vehicle to get them there and back. And frankly, the number of miles they have on it is not that important. It's the fact that it will get there and back that's more important. So uh, it changes. Yeah, and then when I bought my my vehicle, um, you know, it had more miles on it than I was. I was looking for a vehicle under a certain amount of miles because it wasn't brand new. And the dealer told me, well, I actually have one of these, and, you know, mine has 300,000 miles on it. So he said, I wouldn't get too excited about it. <laughs> Which is great to hear a car can go that far, but uh, that's one of the things I always loved about these vehicles. That's why I think Ryan, you've had your you've had three or four Toyotas, haven't you? This is the first Mercedes I've ever had, right? And you've had Toyotas before, and then. I'm getting rid of it. Are <laughs> you going back to Toyota? Just kidding. I'm getting a Wrangler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, that's funny. The, uh, the all right. So the Rav Four is on sale right now, uh, and we talked about uh, a little bit about uh, availability. So there, all the different models are out there, including a hybrid, right? Yeah, our hybrids have uh, just been hitting the ground here in the last month into this month. I'm out, out where I'm at. I'm still talking to some stores that don't have them, and I'm talking to some that are that are just getting them and. And initially, when they're getting them in, they're selling quickly. But that, that's to be expected with a brand-new product. But, yeah, everything should be available now. And the, what was the fuel economy on the hybrid? Because I remember reading that and going, what? Oh, yes. In it fact, was, this is one where it's drastically different than the gas models. Yeah, it, it was. I think it was um, like 40 miles a gallon or 30, 37 miles a gallon or something. Uh, David, we've got to take a quick commercial break. We're going to do that. Thanks for joining us. You can find out more about the RAV4 and the Prius all-wheel drive by going to Toyota's website, toyota.com or ourautoexpert.com. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. It's Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles. Okay, we're at the part of the show where we get to chat with our... We like to call him lovingly our crazy professor, but it's Anton Warman. He's an independent analyst and investor. He's joining us on the phone. Anton, uh, looks like uh, Mr. Elon Musk escaped jail again. Amazing, isn't it? It's like uh, whatever that thing on Netflix these days about Bonnie and Clyde, you know, the cat has nine lives. And I don't know what number he just drew, but maybe he's on number eight. I don't know. So give us a synopsis of what happened in court. Oh, in the court, no, look, this is a story that goes back to last August uh, when uh, uh, Elon Musk proclaimed to the world that he uh, was considering taking the company private at, at $420 per share and that he had, quote, for, uh, funding secured, and then followed up with a series of tweets after that in which he said that the only thing that stood in the way of this deal closing was just a simple shareholder vote. Of course, none of that was true, and the Securities and Exchange Commission, the so-called SEC, went after him about a month or so later with a lawsuit, just simply pointing out that he made the whole thing up. This was uh, basically fraud, uh, and uh, that they sued him. And, of course, uh, the guy, uh, after a day or so of uh, seeing his stock fall, very harshly uh, following that lawsuit, he uh, decided to seek a settlement with the SEC and he was able to obtain one. And part of the settlement was that he had to, going forward, uh, basically pre-clear anything that he would communicate in any format to the outer world uh, that would be, uh, you know, that would be even come close to being material to Tesla 
um, with uh, essentially a designated securities council that would go through what he had to say and make sure that it was uh, at a bare minimum true what he had to say. So, so far, so good. Things kind of uh, went on from there in the fall. And uh, uh, Elon Musk continued to primarily tweet out all sorts of things. And finally, uh, they came to a point in February where he threw out some numbers that were a bit bonkers. And then he corrected himself within a couple of hours. And, uh, and the SEC basically sent some inquiries to the company and said, wait a minute, what happened here? Uh, who approved any of this stuff? And after about two weeks' worth of uh, wailing forth and back, the answer was basically no. Uh, nobody in the company had approved anything. So then the SEC said, wait a minute, you agreed to have somebody approve anything that you write that even come close to being material for the company. And, of course, when it comes to Tesla, nothing is more material than talking about production and sales volumes. I mean, that is the thing that is the single most important thing, arguably, to investors about this company. And so they basically sued him for contempt of court. They they basically went to the judge who oversaw the settlement and said, look, Your Honor, um, the defendant here is simply not abiding to the settlement. He just ignored the whole thing. <laughs> when are people actually going to start realizing? Did you, anything did, that goes on. When are people going to start realizing that it's not even just his tweets? He's doing it everywhere. He's doing it on Joe Rogan. He's talking his stocks up on Joe Rogan. He's talking it up on, on Twitter. He's talking it up everywhere. He's influencing his company in every possible way that he can, and he's getting away with it, and nobody will see that it's happening. Nobody sees it. Yeah, no, no. I mean, clearly, the, the, actually, he didn't have to do very much. In order to abide by this settlement, uh, Elon Musk did not have to do very much by any normal standard. All he had to do was to ask this designated securities council for permission before he sent out whatever it is that he had in mind that he wanted to blurt out. If he want, wanted to tweet about having picked his nose, he said, okay, can I do this? Okay. And all he would get back, presumably, was a yes in most cases. And then nobody could have sued him for anything. Then he would have been fine because this settlement that came out here at the end of September and was implemented in full uh, later in the fall was effectively so generously cut in his favor. It was a very lenient settlement. There was really not much to do, and yet he basically said, ah, forget about it. You know, whether it's on Twitter or going on this podcast or this other podcast, of course, these are all highly problematic situations when the subject at hand starts to talk about all sorts of things that have a high material importance for how the company is going to be valued so, in the securities market and therefore under the purview of the Securities and Exchange Commission. He me, smoked a blunt. He wasn't talking. He smoked a blunt. He, well, he, he allegedly smoked, he, smoked a blunt. He smoked. He, yeah. Okay. Allegedly, he smoked yeah, a blunt we'll on there. Whatever we, you know, smoking or not. I mean, I don't think uh, the Securities oh, Exchange Commission regulates uh, smoking here in this case. No, it's not about it's not about regulating. It's about influencing the stock by a CEO smoking the cannabis live on there, knowing that it's going to influence the stock only weeks after he tweeted it. That's that. Yeah, that is certainly. Uh, one thing that, I mean, there, there are other government agencies that are looking at that. I mean, keep in mind that he is a security clearance uh, through NASA, basically, because he is the one guy 
who uh, gets to send up uh, rockets from U.S. Air Force bases. And uh, you might recall here, just this last Friday, two days ago, there was a story on Bloomberg, very well-researched story. If you haven't read it, it's an absolute must-read. You can't put this thing down. It's a pretty long story. But basically, it's about how Elon Musk uh, berated and uh, allegedly physically attacked an employee who had just resigned within the last 24 or so hours. This happened also around that time at the end of September, by the way, just as the settlement came through. And there were many witnesses to these things. And of course, the board of Tesla had to make an investigation. And of course, since the board of Tesla is paid by Elon, of course, the conclusion right. at which they arrived was that he had done nothing wrong and nothing had really scarcely happened. But he had basically told this guy that he was going to nuke him. Right. So, so <laughs> we, we, the, guy, we, the, the, the one guy in on planet Earth, the one guy, human being in, on planet Earth, who is allowed to send up ICBMs from... Uh, and threaten Air, the employee. Yeah, but he's not really going to do it. <laughs> this, this is too good. This subject is way too good. I want to stand by. I want to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll talk about what the court let him out. They just let him go. They didn't have any reason to... They said the judge had sorted out. We'll find out about what that's all about next. More Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. This is our Auto Expert. Now, here's Nick Miles. This is the part of the show where we get super controversial and uh, Anton Warman tells us how the world really works. Uh, by the way, Anton, if you uh, if you had to invest some money in stocks right now, who has the hottest automotive stock? Well, I'm in very bearish on most of the automotive world right now. I, I think that uh, fortunately the big three, the FCA, Ford, and uh, GM, are at least valued as if they're almost going out of business. So... You know, basically, they're they're basically already down there, and uh, uh, certainly things could always go south from here. But I think there are some significant headwinds that are flying in the face of almost all the automakers right now, and most of them have to do with these very stringent emission targets that, uh, particularly in Europe and China, I mean, Europe is the worst, arguably, but there they basically set these goals that are going to cost the automakers billions and billions to comply with. They either have to raise their prices on their cars by a lot, and you know what happens when you raise prices a lot, you sell fewer of them, of course, or they have to just cut into their profit margins otherwise by by uh, you know subsidizing the sale of uh, of cars that are too expensive to make. So I think that uh, the best that the automotive industry can hope for is a change in these tight em- emissions laws. And right now, uh, that's just not really happening. And uh, maybe it won't happen. And as a result, I have to be uh, on balance, pretty bearish on the fundamentals. But again, companies like GM and FCA and to some extent Ford are already trading at a significant discount, and uh, if there's any life that comes under these companies, then I think they uh, they could advance a little bit. So if you had to put money on any of them, I would say the big three are at least cheap. But uh, I'm uh, I'm not very bullish. The electric car market, uh, is, you know, in China is somewhere where we look to to see what's probably going to happen in the rest of the world. It's the biggest electric car market. We talked about being almost unable to get a license plate in Shanghai or Beijing unless it's for an electric car. Uh, And the electric car industry is booming there, but China's repositioning itself. Yeah, so what's happening is that the federal subsidies in China are now going to be cut in half. I don't really know exactly when they take into effect, but word came about a couple or so weeks ago from... Uh, the Chinese uh, government that uh, 
they're going to uh, cut their federal subsidies by at least half. And then they've told the provinces around the country, just don't subsidize these cars. Just don't do it. So then you have to ask yourself, how is this whole thing going to happen? And I think the politicians there are doing what politicians everywhere like to do. They like to have other people pay the cost so that it is not considered an official tax. So they're just mandating these cars effectively to become all electric and uh, put the burden on the automakers, on the automakers themselves. <coughs> so, so ultimately, too, ownership is changing as well. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's changing as far as uh, um, how you can own a company because Tesla now are going to be the first company that doesn't have to give fifty percent of their ownership to a local company. Yeah, there, there's one other company, Nevs, which bought the old Saab. They, they are also uh, solely owned, so they were the first. Tesla might be the second here. And uh, then you have other regulations that are still a bit fuzzy. For example, do they still have to purchase your batteries from an approved Chinese company or not? That might be one uh, requirement that's still there. And also, what is going to have to be your... Uh, labeling of these cars what's going to have to be your branding because if you look at volkswagen volkswagen was not allowed to use volkswagen or seat or skoda as a name for their new all all electric cars that they're building in china so they had so basically they, they had to come up with a whole new name yeah they they have to come up with a whole new name and and that is because the chinese do not want to give western companies an advantage by offering a name that is already known because of course you know the chinese are like so many other people in in new river rich countries they're interested in these fancy old storied names from the west be it hermes or mercedes or you know it can be anything from french perfumes to luxury automobiles and of course, China you know, domestically doesn't have any such fancy storied names that have been around for literally, in some cases, a couple of hundred years. So they want to uh, put the Western companies at the same, uh, you know, bottom of the barrel uh, footing as as their own startups are, and uh, that has been one limitation. So you know, until Tesla actually starts producing and selling their cars in China, which they've promised is going to start before the end of this year, amazingly enough. And if we see what kind of brand comes out of it, we won't really know to what extent that they have been exempted from these things. And, you know, the, all the signs, at least superficially, point to uh, them having gotten an exemption from this. But we, uh, nobody seems to be able to give an official word on this quite yet. Uh, and now at the same time, too, there's a lot of American companies who look to China for, uh, you know, 80% of their income from Buick has been coming out of China, or 80% of their sales are in China now. And, and there's some companies are struggling now. VW struggling, Hyundai struggling, people are struggling in China to get a good foothold. That's right. I mean, there are so many things coming together here in the last, essentially, uh, last nine months or so. One of the, these things have been these uh, trade tensions with increasing tariffs and a lot of companies ranging from BMW to Jaguar Land Rover and many others have been caught in this thing. You just look at Hyundai and Kia and the Japanese automakers. They're all suffering in terms of Chinese sales. The other one is that there are so many Chinese new automotive startups now that are obviously far more cost-effective than any of these other foreign companies. And then you have uh, the cost of, uh, of complying with the Chinese incentives. So there are headwinds upon headwinds upon headwinds that's facing anybody trying to do uh, business selling cars in China. So I don't envy any of them. And these are all contributing reasons to why the stocks of almost all the automakers are facing such, such uh, tremendous uh, headwinds right now. All right. So how does this affect America apart from the stock price? Well, uh, I mean, it, 
they, this is a reduced economic activity overall and reduced profits. It filters itself through the automakers and the auto parts makers into all aspects of society, right? I mean, if, if these companies do poorly, then we have a problem uh, across the board. So uh, the Chinese has less money to buy all sorts of other U.S. products. To, you know, the, if you can't make as much money building and selling cars in China, then they might buy one fewer iPhone that comes back to Apple. And if Apple doesn't sell well, then there's some uh, real estate developer in San Jose, California, which isn't doing well. And then the restaurants around that place. I mean, it just spills over from area to area. One of the things that's uh, that's sort of been unbalancing and changing is the fact that uh, China had, and, and America have had the tit-for-tat tariffs that have been going on. But it looks like uh, meetings in Washington, D.C. may solve that in the next month. Yeah, well, we've heard um, optimistic claims, certainly from the U.S. side, for many months already, saying that, well, we have a glimmer of hope. We think that eventually we're going to solve them. But uh, we've heard that so many times now that people are yawning when they hear it. So when people heard it again just a few days ago, uh, people started you know, saying, well, I've heard this story before and whatever. But the Chinese came out within hours thereafter. And I think for the first time really expressed some optimism directly from the Chinese side. And uh, that's new in this whole thing. So if the Chinese are saying that uh, we think we're getting close to a deal, then, then that's, a, uh, that's an important uh, development. And I think everybody's hoping that within the next month or so that we'll be able to come to uh, an agreement. But I, I, this is one of those cases where it's so hard to assess the probability of uh, any, a, a final deal actually coming together because it can all hang on just one little thing that makes or breaks it. All right, let's turn our uh, attention to uh, electric cars. Uh, Mercedes-Benz are now offering uh, drives of their new electric SUV. Uh, they're going to be test driving it uh, this coming summer in the, you know, for journalists to, uh, to get an opportunity to drive it. Uh, that's a lot sooner than we thought it might be uh, coming to market. Audi has had a few hiccups with their e-tron. Uh, it looks like that'll be coming uh, maybe this summer. Uh, the war of electric cars hotting up in the United States, the new models are finally starting to be released? Yeah, I mean, I would see some of the um, canaries in the coal mines actually happening first in Europe. For example, the Audi e-tron went on sale now about four weeks ago in uh, in Europe, and it's going on sale here in the United States in about four weeks from now. And we see that the early sales numbers from Europe uh, are that the Audi e-tron is now outselling uh, the Tesla Model S and the Tesla Model X uh, combined by very significant margins. Now, of course, there are a lot of things going on here. Uh, the initial sell-in may be aggravated in favor of, of the new entrant who has a pent-up uh, demand. On the other hand, we don't know how many exact volumes are actually being manufactured. Audi has told everybody last September that they're going to be making 200 cars per day, but when are they making 200 cars now? Were right. they a few months ago? Will they a few months into the future? So I think, you know, Audi is coming here to the U.S. with a big bang in uh, in May, and then Mercedes is going on sale in Europe here this summer, Germany first, and then the rest of um, Europe in the early fall. And then, of course, Mercedes will be making this car in China before the end of the year. And then it comes to the United States uh, next spring. So uh, we'll see there. I, I haven't driven the Mercedes yet. I've certainly driven the Audi and uh, the Jaguar, for that matter. And the uh, Jaguar is doing very well in Europe, not so much in the United States. The consumer awareness, of course, in the United States is pretty low when it comes to, in particular, 
Jaguar. Jaguar is a very small brand in the United States, and a Jaguar electric car is going to be smaller than that. They've been selling about 200 units a month in the United States, and of course, uh, many, many multiples of that in Europe. So I think uh, I think Jaguar has done okay, but it's not... Uh, not in this particular uh, geographic region. And talking about cars on sale, Tesla failing to meet their projected sales, uh, or projected, uh, yeah, projected sales, I guess, or production, projected production. That's right. This That was the big news this week. Tesla reported on Wednesday evening that they had missed their March quarter unit sales number materially. Uh, they shipped about, uh, they sold about 91,000 cars last quarter in December. 91,000, and now it fell to 63 this quarter. So from 93,000 a quarter to 63,000. That's a very big miss. And um, and that's going to cause a lot of problems because, of course, the company is uh, uh, living on a thin red line economically. And uh, uh, we'll see here in about a month when they report actual financial results, what, impl- what implications this will have had. So, of course, during the quarter... Uh, Tesla started exporting the Model 3 for the first time to most of Western Europe as well as to China. And, of course, that was the big winner in the quarter, but uh, the U.S. sales was down. Uh, If you back out what the numbers were, you'll find that Tesla's U.S. sales were actually down by 61% this quarter. 61%. So, of course, yeah, so... Obviously, sales in, in China and Europe were up, but the, the net of it all was was that it was down 31%, which is a uh, really, really huge deal from 91 to 63,000. All right. In the last 30 seconds, Alan, tell us, did they manage to uh, finance their debt uh, that was coming due? Because they had a big, a big payment coming up. Well, they had one that came due March 1st, which they paid in cash. They had no choice but to pay in cash. They have a couple of more debt payments, one that's coming due here just, I think, just a matter of a few weeks from now, and then another one coming due in the late fall. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. But, I mean, uh, this is uh, uh, the company certainly could use uh, more financing at this point. But the question is, why haven't they done that already? They have had... Uh, uh, most of the last, certainly the last 18 months, to be in a, right. what seems to the outer world like a good position to raise some money, and they just haven't. Anton Woolman seeking Alpha is where he can uh, he can be read. Uh, many of his stories there. He joins us every week talking about finances. You can join us 24-7 at ourautoexpert.com. You can hear this show back with me, Ryan, and Megan anytime you want at ourautoexpert.com too.